Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number two of Gatekeeper. Thanks for tuning in. The first episode with Adam Eget from the Comedy Store has only gotten great feedback so far, so thank you for listening to that. I'm very proud to announce that we reached, with the Gatekeeper podcast, number 192 on the iTunes Top 200 comedy podcasts. And that's nothing to sniff out, folks. That's pretty exciting. Speaking of things to sniff out, my voice. I'm a little sniffly. Yes, bookers are people too. We have immune systems and they go in and out. So um, I'm a little bit on the outs right now. A little sniffly. Anyway, back to the iTunes thing. That's so cool. Pat on my back. If you can, leave a comment and rate this show on iTunes and help spread the gospel of this show. So part of the reason I created this podcast was so that I'd have something to point comics to listen to when they're hitting me up about spots. And what's funny and ironic to me is that in the past week since this uh, podcast has aired, when I've suggested this to people, to comics that are hitting me up, the most annoying ones have said something like, I don't need that or that's not for me. Well, if you're a comedian listening to this and like what you hear, please encourage your comedian friends to listen because together we can defeat the scourge of entitlement that exists in our world. Also worth noting, I was actually a guest on another podcast called Inappropriate Earl with Earl Skakel, who is a regular comic at the Comedy Store. And I get more in depth about my role here at Booking the Hollywood Improv, which will come out organically over the course of episodes of the Gatekeeper podcast. But if you want to hear more about what the specifics of my job are and how crazy it is, Go to SoundCloud and look for the Jamie Flam episode of Inappropriate Earl. So even after one week, this podcast has been another reminder for myself that once you put things out, things will really start to take shape. Uh, just getting it started and putting it out into the world, it's already evolving. And I just always need to remember that it's impossible for these things to happen until you put it out to the world. As Seth Godin or Steve Jobs might say, ship. Until you ship, that is, put your art out to the world, your soul is living in your brain or on your computer or in your notebook. One example of the way this podcast is evolving, more sound effects. Pretty sweet, huh? So for any artists listening that are waiting to do that first open mic or put out that first podcast or publish that blog or release the video, just bite the bullet and do it because you will rarely, if ever, find your voice immediately. It takes time. So put it out there and see things happen for you. And that actually brings me to today's guest. She's awesome. And we talked about a lot of things. One of them was about how comedians develop and grow as artists and how you can see a comic do a set one night and a year later, it can be completely different and they can be completely ready for whatever it is they're showcasing for, whether that be late night or anything else. Her name is Zoe Friedman, and she's currently the head of comedy for Blue Ribbon Content, which is Warner Brothers Television Digital Division. And she's worked and booked the comics for David Letterman for eight years and many other amazing things. And we had a great conversation. What she looks for when people are pitching to her, the thin line between persistence and annoyance. And like I said, about how 
comics and artists develop over time. One final thing, we think we found an audio glitch, a little slight buzz that goes throughout the episode. We think we got it. We have an expert team that was on the case doing a crazy compressions and shit like that. And uh, I think we got it. But if you hear a little buzz, just know that it's not the weird voice in your brain and that it should be all fixed by episode three coming out next week. So here's the episode. Welcome to episode number three, recording live at the Hollywood Improv from the Sideshow Network Studio, just about 10 steps away from my office where I serve as the artistic director of this venue. And I'm very excited about today's guest. She's sitting right across from me right now, and she's the current um, head of uh, content for Blue Ribbon Content. Head of comedy. Head of comedy, even, which is Warner Brothers Development um, Digital. Warner Brothers Television's digital division. Okay, cool. Um, And your history. Your resume is incredible. I mean, starting at the very beginning, you grew up at the Hollywood Improv. In New York and oh, Hollywood. New York. Yeah. The, the daughter of Bud Friedman, who's been one of my mentors, who started the Improv. So you've lived this life of the comedy club. I couldn't get out if I wanted to. No. No, that's no. not true. My sister is a health chef in Santa Cruz, so could have gone either way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're ingrained in the, in this world. And uh, I mean, I from am. the moment I started working here, like, you know, I saw a lot of you cause you're <laughs> very involved still. Um, and so going back on your resume too, so you're the talent booker for David Letterman for several years. I was, I was at the show for 10 and a half years. I was an intern and a receptionist for two years and slowly grew into being a producer and booker and comedy. And the comics were sort of my niche mm-hmm. for, I guess, about four years, five years. And then uh, Jimmy Kimmel. And then I did a little stint for Jimmy um, last year booking his comics, but not in-house. So that was kind of an interesting experience, very different from Letterman. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about you uh, because uh, <clears throat> as a booker and also as in development, um, which is another whole realm of gatekeeping, making decisions that will, uh, you know, give people jobs or not give people jobs. Yes. How do you feel about being a gatekeeper? I've never really used that term. Um, do you like of, that term? I don't mind it. I, I you know, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, an inclusive person where I'm like, come along, let's all come at the gate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good term. I think gatekeeper is a pretty cool term. Well, you're so sweet. And like you just said, you want everyone to be at the gate. Like I, I struggle with that too, because the whole point is that only certain people can get in. No, that's a hard one, right? But I think that speaks to, I mean, you even ta- touched on it before we started recording, sort of the human element of mm-hmm. it, that comedians or any writers or whoever one is making a decision about is to treat people like people mm-hmm. and not just a representative, their joke. Is, I don't like their joke, so I don't like them or I don't like their script. So I don't like them. They're human beings. They work very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because I grew up around so much stand up that the underbelly of the comedian and how vulnerable they are and um, how they put it out there. I mean, on stage, a lot of the time, you can't abuse that. Like, how mm-hmm. could anybody? I mean, I've seen it. <laughs> I remember when I used to set up showcases for Robert Morton, um, and I'd worked really, really hard to get these comics up to snuff for an audition. Forget doing the show. And Robert would come, Morty at the time, and he would 
sometimes <laughs> turn his back entirely on the show. Like he would be at Stand Up New York or the Improv and he'd sort of just be looking around and I would just be like holding back tears for the poor comics who've worked so hard and for me for that matter, I like guess. Like literally just turn around to be like... Yeah, like not and not about anybody on stage, almost like just kind of flirting with a waitress or something, you know, and oh, it was so painful. Well, I have a question. I mean, growing up, before you became a gatekeeper in your own right, the daughter of a gatekeeper, did you feel like comics were kissing your ass around the club? I'm sure. Um, yeah, I, I guess it was so ingrained. I didn't really realize it. And I think um, it was all very friendly and inclusive, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but <laughs> there's a comedian in New York at the Improv. I won't name his name. And it was uh, in the 80s and the AIDS epidemic was among us and we had people in the comedy community that we lost aid so it was it was really prevalent and he wore rubber gloves <laughs> everywhere he went he was sort of a germaphobe but when he would shake my hand he would take the rubber glove off and I was like that is just a sycophant beyond like <laughs> I'm as possible just because I'm a gatekeeper doesn't mean I can't pass you it's like he was such an obvious kiss ass so if you're gonna kiss did, ass did do it get well. him spots not by me <laughs> That's crazy. Um, <laughs> well, just growing up in that, like, can you talk a little bit more just about that? What led you to, was, was Letterman the first step towards you well, getting into comedy? So, you know, being at the improv and um, more so the New York improv, I was so young when we, my family was out here in L.A. I was like 8, 9, 10, 11, and I would come to the club for special events, but often I wasn't, you know, my sister and I didn't get to come all the time. When I moved back to New York, when my parents divorced and Bud had the L.A. club and Silver had the New York club, we would go to the club all the time because my mother was like a single mother. <laughs> my sister and I would go take the bus after school and go to the bar and do our homework. And sometimes like, you know, comics were going out on the road and Rick Messina used to be a transport person, you know, and Rick, for those of you listening, is a, you know, a very successful manager, but he would drive comics to gigs on Long Island. And so sometimes comics would be in the bar and help my sister and I with homework. And um, we would be there a lot. Um, and then I started working every job there. I mean, I answered phones. Uh, I hosted at, at a certain point. And ultimately, after I graduated college... You hosted the shows? No, I mean, it was a host, like a, you know, a door oh, God, host. A door you know, host yeah. sorry. Um, with a long line of the Keenan Ivory Waynes and um, Michael Patrick Kings and many... David Tell mm -hmm. was a, door, a host, like a door host. No, not hosted. I never got up on stage. I waitressed and did every other job. And after I graduated college, I wanted to travel. So I had the built in job sort of, um, at the improv and then I'd kind of go off and travel and I'd come back. Um, so comedy was like something that jazzed me. I wrote my college essay about stand up because they say, write something that's unique. It was like it, your thesis. What well, was like the college statement? essay was about seeing a comic mm -hmm. who performed and wasn't great and then seeing them a year later or whatever the time frame was and how much better they were and that it is, you know, an art that gets better, right, with mm -hmm. practice. So it was kind of that. And I was just personally talking about trying out for volleyball my freshman year in high school and not making the team, but trying and coming, you know, practicing and coming back and making the team and mm -hmm. then ultimately being captain by the time I was a senior in college. Um, so I was kind of making that parallel to seeing the growth of comedians. And that's the other thing that I hope every gatekeeper 
understands because I know being side by side with people in the industry that aren't as close to stand-ups and understanding them that it is a prop like it is a work in progress and you know somebody who isn't so great can be very great um so anyway I, I loved comedy and I loved being around it and then after I got my kind of travel out and I got my wanderlust out I applied I was an internship an intern at Letterman uh, during college. So I applied back and um, they actually had somebody moving up, getting promoted. People didn't leave the show. Obviously, it was mm-hmm. pretty successful and to be TV New York. So I was a receptionist in the talent department. I mean, I spent two years on the phones, which was hard the second year. Um, and then kind of, you know, kind of had my niche of stand-ups and worked with Daniel Kellison, who booked the stand-ups for a while and kind of assisted him. And then when he left, I ended up... Was that it. always the path? Did you see that as the <clears throat> well, dangling carrot? Yeah, I think it was handled through the talent department, which Dave had no interest in. Like, you know, he was like, yes, schmess. You know, he was really hard on the writers. And it was, I think, the stand-up that was not so much a dangling carrot, but almost like... Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I'm in the talent department. That's part of the talent department, even though it's one area that Dave cared very much about. Excuse me. And so um, I, you know, it was something that I thought I'd grow into. I certainly wanted to. I can't quite remember if I, like, of course I would do it, but I I was, I came with so much information, like, you know, Mm -hmm. already as a receptionist, I didn't have to learn it. I knew that world and could make calls and set up showcases from very early age. So, um, and I love that part of it. I didn't love booking the celebrities. I thought publicists were terrible human mm. beings. My parents used to always go, oh, managers and agents of comics, they ruin everything. And then when I started dealing with publicists, I would tell my parents, I'd be like, you think managers are agents? I'd wait till you meet publicists. They're the worst. <laughs> how, how did you deal with them? And how, are they just entitled as hell? Like They feel entitled. Yeah. They feel like they have their own agenda. They feel like they're like mean girls and mean boys, you know, I don't know. You know, I dealt with it cause I had great people I worked with and we worked for a great show and ultimately like people would give a shit. Maybe, Oh, can I curse? Yeah. Okay. In fact, um, it's encouraged. Oh, good. Go crazy. Fuck. Good. Okay. Um, and you know, we just would deal with them because we had a good show and a good product and we were proud of what we did. So people would come. And Is it the same politics? I mean, for this club, you know, there's you know dozens of spots maybe in a week. But for Letterman or for Late Night Show, there's oh. much smaller numbers. So it, is it easier to say no in that regard? Like For the stand-up particularly? I didn't deal with the publicists so much for stand-ups. Mm-hmm. Thank God. I dealt with managers or comics directly or club owners even. Sometimes say, hey, you should look at this person or whatever. Um, so, yeah, there were so few spots. But, you know, Dave did a, a fair amount. There were so many less on Kimmel. I mean, mm-hmm. that was – I did – I was there probably about eight months. I think I had two comics on. That's it. It just – they rarely have it. They rarely have it. They wanted to pre-tape them, mm-hmm. so they had them. Um, and everybody is great, and they produce a great show. I just felt like that was so not what stand-up was for late night. Mm-hmm. Um, stand-up for late night is, you know, you walk out on that that ledge, yeah. and it goes well, or it doesn't go well. Like, you know, my point to them, sometimes when I was pushing for people, like, you know, I will tell you, Dave Chappelle, when he was first on Letterman, was good, but not great. Mm-hmm. And we booked him again and again, and he became a friend of the show, you know, Jim Carrey, we didn't book as a stand-up at Letterman. And he always, when he became a big star, would do Let, uh, Jay first because mm-hmm. like that moment, that big moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even in late night, your development is a, a key focus. 
You yeah. want people coming back to you, yeah. Well, yeah, you want that. If they become a big star, you want that friend of the show, and you want to discover them. I mean, mm-hmm. that was it was such a big deal to do a late night from Carson to certainly before, but, you know, to do that big network debut on Carson. And, you know, we wanted to be that. That's That was the late night legacy, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that, that's changed considerably. That has changed. There's many different shows and... um you know, it's not, it's hard to get the network debut because people do television so early, mm-hmm. so young, you know. I remember doing a week of network debuts at Letterman and not all went over so well, but um, because it was hard to find a group of comics that fit into the, and Letterman, besides, there were a fair amount of spots, but he was so narrow what he liked. Mm-hmm. He was very Midwestern. The white mono- the the white it was very white male, but mm-hmm. I mean the the monologist, mostly white male, mm-hmm. were really the go to for him. That's who he liked. That's kind of what he did. The observational, so um, that worked for me, sort of sensibility wise. But it was certainly very limited. Sure. Um, and when I got to Comedy Central and would see cuts of like South Park and farting and burping <laughs> and you know people blowing people, I don't know. I was like, oh, I found home. I mean, like, you know, it was pretty conservative. I couldn't like, you know, you can't tell that joke about pooping or you can't tell that joke about sex or, you know, there was very kind of specific. How much did you help shape the the sets? Um, I would say a lot mm-hmm. on some. Um, I would say I spent a lot of time. Uh, I had all the time in the world when I was young. Now I have a lot less, but, you know, I would go out to the clubs for, I mean, I was out in the clubs all the time, but with a comic, I would fly a comic in from LA or New York comic and be out like four nights in a row doing multiple sets. Mm-hmm. So I would travel from club to club with Atel or Chappelle or, you know, I mean, when we book comics from different countries, certainly like getting language and, you know, it was always interesting because, you know, what works for comics in a club, you know, I guess I could say it this way and you might feel this, it's like, I will never know their set or their material as well as they do. They know it. They know what kills. Mm -hmm. They know what doesn't kill. But I had to be the representation of the show and what would work. And I would fight with comics and lose the battle sometimes when they go, no, this joke will kill. I can't do a set without it. I was like, I understand. But I want you to be able to come back to the show. And if you do that joke, you risk. And I can't remember the great specifics, but I do remember getting like the look (laughs) from Dave on certain ones. And you know what that did just in my sort of advocation my experience is trust my gut trust my instinct over and over like every time I would get a look or got called up to the office or whatever it is I'd be like if I only trusted my gut on that Mm -hmm. and fought harder or sort of was more assured and say like no you can't do it I can't only imagine the stakes and just sitting there watching this comic and getting that look. Well, what was the opposite look like when, when someone killed? Well, I'll tell you the true opposite was at the end of the network debut week. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I think we were still taping Fridays. It might have been double taping Thursday. I forgot because we we stopped taping on Fridays at some point. But I had Jim Gaffigan on and we saved him to the end. And the opposite of the look was Dave wants to and Rob Burnett want to see Jim and you up in the office after. And I was like, okay. And mm-hmm. I sat there with Maureen Taron, who was representing Jim at the time. And we looked at each other. Maureen and I were very close because we did a lot of work with Chappelle and Jeff Ross and all that because she worked with Barry Katz and we did a lot of business with them. And anyway, I just sat there and Maureen Lloyd and I looked at each other like, this is show business. Yeah. They're like, we want to develop with you. We want to blah, blah. You know, and it was like so... So exciting. What does that mean that they want to develop with you? Well, they wanted to do a show with him. They were starting Worldwide Pants Productions 
And when Rob kind of took over and started growing the company, he comes from the writing place and he wanted to start doing shows. And Jim's first show, which was with Worldwide Pants, was Welcome to New York with Christine Baranski. And he sort of was played this Midwestern guy that Mm -hmm. came to New York. It was an okay show. Um, No offense, Jim. Um, But uh, he managed to do all right, so he's doing fine. Um, But, yeah, they were really interested in his voice and his comedy, and that was the opposite of getting the the skunk look from from Dave, which happened a few times, yeah. Do you remember who else was on that week of Network Debuts? Um, Yes. Let me think. Brian Callen. Nice. Um, God. I should have prepared. My memory's so bad. No, 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 no. Oh, well, maybe it will come to me and we could cut it together beautifully. When I'll look it up on my phone. No, I'm kidding. Well, what are, I mean, looking back at all your time there, who um, would be the, the people that come to mind as, as the biggest success stories? Well, I would say. And any, the biggest bust. <laughs> I'll tell you the biggest bust, but I'll tell you the success stories first. So the biggest success, I would say, is Jim. Just like in, I, I would say anybody who got invited back that I discovered. Like when I started, Ray Romano was already coming on to the show. So mm-hmm. I knew Ray from the improv. I brought him back up, but he was already kind of mm-hmm. starting there. Um, so anybody that I booked that got invited back, um, Mitch Hedberg, Jim Gaffigan, Dane Cook, like those you feel like, ah, I did something like that is success because Dave likes them and wants them to be in the, you know, rotation, like the Jake Johansons, Stephen Wrights, the Jonathan Katz, like mm-hmm. those people who are already kind of in his world. Um, <laughs> biggest bust was somebody, I was so, I don't know what the word is. I'm such a dork. I'm so obedient. Like I would look at every tape that was sent to me. I just did. I wanted to give that every comic a chance. I really, um, and I would like look at half inch tapes, like the people would send in cold. And there was a comedian who lived, I think in like Cincinnati, Ohio, can't remember. And I showed the tape and like, we ultimately, after some back and forth, and he put some more material down, sent it to me. It was, it's so much easier and faster now. Um, we booked him, and then he got bumped a number of times. And that certainly was a rite of passage for every comedian to get mm-hmm. bumped. And um, he got bumped so much that Dave, just every time he was on, Dave would make fun of his name in in the Dave way, not like the comedian, but Bobby Tessel, Bobby Tessel, and like over and over. So he kind of had this, there was a lot of builds up. And then finally Bobby went off and he didn't do so great. I mean, he was not asked back. And that felt like sad to me because there was a lot of build up and he got bumped. Poor Bobby. I never thought about this, but I mean, since it's taped earlier in the day, if, the, if a set just bombs, why not just cut it out? Yeah, well, that's not what Dave would do. I mean, that's what I was also kind of trying to... Although that would destroy someone. It would. And honestly, once they got on, first of all, it's hard to bomb at the Letterman stage. They were hyped to be there. And this was all CBS by the time I was in that position to bring people to the theater. It was, I mean, to perform in a theater, like when you have to do stand up in a studio like Kimmel or Fat, like it's different. Like the Ed Sullivan Theater was an amazing place to perform. So it was hard to bomb, I think. Did they have microphones? Yeah. They did. Because mm-hmm. it's weird now when you see certain shows where there's no mic and I know. Just conversationally. Kind of just feel like that. Yeah. No, there were definitely mics. Um, so I think it was like hard to not do well, even if Dave might not like them. Mm-hmm. I think it was hard not to do well. But I think, I mean, that was even when there were people who like at Kimmel, like they weren't sure or whatever. I was like, but that's that that's the, the plank. You walk out and you do great. Great. You have them back and you have like this person you broke. They don't do great. 
then you don't have them back. Mm -hmm. It's five minutes. Right. So as far as late night TV goes and your experience there, what advice would you give comics young and old that are wanting to make that first um, Mm -hmm. TV set or things that maybe um, really impressed you or things that really annoyed you? (laughs) In terms like how how to deal with a booker or a gatekeeper? Yeah, I I don't know how much access comic has to like a, a book of a TV show versus a club. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they can get in touch with you at any time, right? They can find you. They find their ways. Yeah. Same thing. Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think there is a sort of that fine line of persistence and annoyance mm-hmm. and um, somebody who could read a room and a good comic should know that line mm-hmm. and hopefully follows that line. Um and, but there is something about persistence, and this is something that if comics are listening, as we were talking about who you want to listen to this, often it is that we get busy. Often it is that we just have lost track of your link. It is not personal. Mm-hmm. And there's that fine line of, hey, just want to remind you I'm here. I'd love to, you know. The other thing for me, and I don't think this is true for all bookers for and let's say for television because yours is a live art form and i'm sure people send you links for Mm -hmm. you know their comedy but i i mean i will always look at a link um but i like to see the person live to me there's no better experience and i happen to love watching stand-up so it's not a labor i mean it might be like what night is my husband going to be home to watch the kids so I can go? So it's a, it's a juggling act now, mm-hmm. but it's not a labor. It's kind of like a fun thing for me to do. So you still love watching stand-up? I do. I do. I mean, I'm dorky that way, but I love it. I do. I, yeah, You know what it is? It's like um, I love – I can laugh at home. I can laugh at a TV show with my family. I can laugh by myself. To come to a space, a tribalized space, to laugh with other tribalized. people. Tribalized. Tribalized, yeah. That is more powerful than anything. I mean, I, I think that to me is like, yeah, I, I sometimes, if some, have you ever had the experience where you're watching an act, whether you like them or not, and sometimes you're just disconnected and you can't get into the rhythm sure. or you're sort of thinking about eight million other things. Sometimes if I'm in that state, like it's not lost because I sit back and I watch everybody else laugh and I go, this is almost as good just to see other people's faces be elated. I, I love to watch that, you know. Do you still, I mean, I can only imagine the improv in the, in the 70s and 80s, mm. but how has that changed? I mean, going to see a show and, and just the overall vibe of a comedy club. Now well, it's such then. a business now, right? Yeah. I mean, like when the club started, it wasn't even a comedy club. Uh, it was a coffee house and it evolved, which is quite a cool story. Um, you want to tell it? <laughs> well, I mean, how I, how I wasn't there, um, but I love, I'm looking at the picture of John Lennon in front of the New York Improv mm-hmm. and all the posters because, you know, and Bud tells a story, my dad tells a story that the brick wall, which is the iconic sort of symbol of yeah. stand-up, was a happy accident. It was, we have no money to cover it over. Mm-hmm. So it will be just like those posters that covered the windows on 44th Street of these old movies. Like I see it like Forbidden Territory. It was like the shark woman, like all these amazing posters that I never saw the movies, but I was aware of sort of this generation of films even before me because they covered it. So it, it was so not a business when they started. It's a much more of a business now. And um, I will say I go to a lot of clubs. I think the improv is one of the best run clubs. Um, 
I'm also treated very nicely. Sure, sure. <laughs> so that doesn't hurt. You're but a I VIP. Think, no, but I mean, I just even see it's a comfortable space, and I, I, um, you know, it's just there's just uh, it, it, it's I, I don't know. It's not very good answer, but I think it's just much more of a a business. But I, I do think like. I do think that spirit of comics wanting to make other comics laugh and, you know, I, I think the, the one of the differences, and I, I do think now there are enough, I don't mean alternative spaces, but spaces that, um, you know, for certainly in the 80s when industry was here all the time and it was Jerry Seinfeld and Jay mm-hmm. in the 90s and, you know, um, nobody could develop, right? Nobody could have those sets where they would bomb and not lose their career. Right. Um, I think that's a loss for people. Like, but I think there are spaces that have that now that you can try things out. And when I was interviewing the comedians for the the anniversary special, that's something that everybody sort of commented and missed about um, like a social media free space that if people bombed or tried something like Michael, well, I mean, God forbid, like Michael Richards sure. thing that people videotape and there's no there's no freedom from that, right? People go and chirp and talk about things. So there isn't that kind of space, but I, I mean, certain places have it, but just in terms of like everybody documenting everything on their phone, mm-hmm. you, it's hard to not, uh, not, not be public when you don't want to be public, right. To try stuff out. But I think the improv honors that mm-hmm. to let people do it. But I think that's hard with. So back in the day, the, the gates for the improv anyway, were, um, you know, much more reinforced. I don't know how you would describe uh, actual yeah. gates. <laughs> Uh, thicker, uh, but um, for the people that were getting up, uh, you had to be at a very, very high level. Certainly, at a at a point, there was definitely um, there was definitely a process, right, to get into the audition. And actually, if you watched the special, um, it's on Hulu and Netflix now. It's a great special. It Everyone is a great special. Um, Fifty years behind the brick wall, the improv colon. Fifty years behind the brick wall. Larry David told, I think, an amazing story. When he went there with friends, did you hear the story that he told? Of his first time going up? Yeah, well, no, first time trying to go up. Yeah. So he was there with friends. And as a as a customer, he lived in Long Island. He he joked that his parents were ready to put their heads in the oven because he was like driving a cab. He was doing this. He was not successful. And he went with his friends and he had the spark. I mean, that's how I describe it. And he stood, he stood up and he's like, you know, in his head, I have to, I have to go on there. I'm going to go on stage. He'd never been to a comedy. He's like, I got to get on this stage. And he walks back and he finds Bud and my dad. And he's like, I want to go on. (laughs) I was like, have you ever been on stage before? He's like, no. And he's like, have you, what's your name? My name's Larry. Where, you know, whatever the questions were. And Larry's discovery that there was this whole process, like an audition, you know, an audition night and all of that, you know, was, yeah, it took a lot to get stage time at that point because there weren't very many clubs either. Mm-hmm. So stage time was super valuable and, you know, not many places. So I remember the audition day, the once month Sunday where people would come I don't know, at noon for a seven o'clock show to pick a number and only 30 people would get, I mean, I can't remember the process. It's too depressing. To and so Bud of, would sit there and watch 30 comics. And Bud, yeah, yeah. They would watch and get a nod or come back, you know, often it would be like, come back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, probably that's where I learned about there's the progress, right? Cause I remember them saying like, I really like, it's funny now that I'm just talking about, it, I would hear them give notes in the aisle 
kind of, and I'm sure Bud here, but I didn't witness as much. Like, you know, the comic would walk down the, you know, the aisle off the stage, and my parents would sit there. Oh, yeah, I like that bit and that bit. Come back next month and, you know, try that again. But let's see it again. And that sort of now I realize, like, oh, I, I didn't just discover that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I sort of heard that. So I mean, it's kind of obvious. You know. Well, so, I mean, something we're, I'm trying to bring back to this club with Rita and everybody else is a sense of development. Mm. Which um, is lost. I mean, the comedy store is, is famous for that. They have the rooms and they mm. groom you. But the improv... they have multiple spaces. Exactly. But we have the lab again, so yeah. we're finally able to create some sort of system, even though it's it's a long time in the making and will take a couple of years to develop, but where we can see those and give the notes and actually create a, a path at this club so we can see... Because, you know, like uh, in the same way you want to groom people for Letterman, you want people to call this their home because mm-hmm. it's a club. And people are sort of loyal to their home club. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, is that even where the term comedy club came from? Was it, it was a clubhouse. Clubhouse, right. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, I love that. I'm so happy that that's back open and I see the listings and I I, I haven't been to that many shows. But um, Well, this is your first time in this room. So this, this is our my, new podcast yeah, studio. Yeah, it's beautiful. What I'm has this room in. been over the last... 40 I years. don't even know what has been. I, I know it was storage. <clears throat> it's been storage. It's been a kitchen. It's a kitchen, been, right? I don't even know what else. I heard it was a theater at one point. Like there oh, was, they're doing shows up here. That's possible. Hmm. Hmm. My memory is so bad. Um, I don't think I ever saw a show up here. But um, but what is? I mean, your action just to seeing like I, I love- mean it's the. The step in involvement, with especially having um, you know podcasting, and there was never a green room at the improv. No, there was no green room. I mean, we had a, the bar in the New York club and the bar here were. Well, that's an incredible thing. Why do you think that is? Because you don't need any rehearsal. Comics just go on. They don't need their costumes. They don't need any preparation <laughs> besides themselves on some level. That was that movie like Punchline with Sally Field mm-hmm. and Tom Hanks. It was always with the like, lockers. Take it downstairs. You know, the club, <laughs> we all laugh. Take it downstairs. You know, what does that look like? You know, the downstairs in the New York improv was like you know some supplies and a lot of probably rats and cockroaches well that's probably what um, made the improv what it was part partly is uh, that the comics had to hang out at the bar yeah i mean that's where and, and around the corner at the diner you know after whatever. was there a diner in, in, oh, in new, york. new york here new york. yeah here we used to go always to mustache cafe after across the street which is now red o or canters oh that's still the hot spot yeah. is it yeah yeah I know they have the Kibbis room and they do stand up, but we used to go. I mean, that my dad used to drag my sister and I. I don't even think, I, I can't even imagine my son, like maybe he'd want to go out at like two in the morning for eggs with comics, but my sister and I would be constantly with my dad with these comics who probably did blow in the bathroom. Who knows? Like, you know, and then these like prepubescent girls hanging out with them. I don't know. How much blow has been done oh in this God. building? A ton. <laughs> That's one thing I'm super naive naive about, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure it's much different now than it was in the 80s, but I'm sure every crevice of this room and club is I think so. covered in cocaine. Cocaine and stuff. I, you know, I, I kind of, maybe I'm naive too. I think pot is sort of the, the friendlier of the comic drugs, at least, at least in this generation. Um, but yeah, cocaine was certainly around... I knew a bunch. Of, yeah, I don't you know. I think, in, you know, I missed that phase out here probably where, you know, comics were superstars and rock stars. And, you know, I was mm-hmm. in New York and there was their own scene going, but it was a little different than here. I'm sure there was blow up the lawsuit here. Well, I'm a child of the dare, the dare generation. So what's oh, right. Dare against drugs. Yeah. What okay. does that stand for? Drugs. I don't know. 
it yes it is it has, it has to, to be. be drugs yeah. against it wouldn't be drugs against don't <laughs> don't we're gonna get our researcher on the on All the right, case let's do that so why don't you just take us from letterman to your now career in development and and creating content and producing well i will tell um when I, so, you know, I brought in Jim Gaffigan, Mitch Hedberg, who they didn't develop around, but um, I do have a funny story about Mitch when he did the show. So, you know, Mitch's persona and true to life will sort of drug down a bit, you know, out of it, but super sharp, you know, observation. And he's somebody I brought to the show and broke. And there was one set he was doing. And again, he returned. He came back many times where it looked like he nodded out, and he might have. Mm-hmm. I don't know what his actual state was in the middle of it. And I had that moment. I'm going to get the eye. I'm done. I'm fired, you know. Um, and I guess because it worked so well for his character, <laughs> like his persona, nobody thought it was out of the ordinary. But I knew that that wasn't supposed to be in there. He played it off. He came back. He finished his set. Dave liked him. So anyway, that was where I was like, Phew. No, I was thinking about Mitch Hedberg, and this is kind of a brief aside, but when I started doing stand-up, and I did a brief stint like many years ago, yeah. but it was very in vogue at the time because Mitch was so huge, and um, I think he had just passed. But he was the the man of every comic at every open mic was did their version of Hedberg, yeah. and just comics, and it, it seems so easy. And it's like, oh, Mitch just goes up there and he just says one-liners and, and does his short jokes. Anyone could do that, but this idea that that persona and that, that um, human aspect was coming out of him after years and years and years and years. So just this idea of comics, even though you might have jokes, like the the, the you that's going to come out of it and that character, quote unquote, that's going to take years down the line. So Mitch was much more than just those jokes. That's right. I mean, his whole person. I mean, and you could think, I mean, Stephen Wright did a similar thing and Dimitri. I mean, there were a lot of people, but they did it in their own way and they had mm-hmm. different personas. I mean, I would say like it's a very buzzy development word to say like, Develop your voice, but that's all. Develop your yeah. voice because anybody you can tell the same joke but differently if it's through your prism and your voice, right? So that's that. But I will go back to my 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 journey. But um, so I I was at Letterman for a long time doing com- comics and and celebrities and all of that, and then I had the opportunity to move to California in '99, and Worldwide Pants was launching Craig Kilborn, and um, I. They asked me to move out here and there's some back and forth, but I said, okay. And I got to work on both shows from here. So I would do comics for New York and do comics here and celebrities and stuff for Kilbourne. And we did a lot of comics in Kilbourne. That was super fun just because you got to mm-hmm. book a lot and work with a lot of comics. But, um, and then there was, um, I remember that World Life Pants was hiring a development person. And I was like, oh, that's my job. I mean, I brought in Jim Gaffigan. I know what development is. I mean, I did it. I know it. Mm -hmm. And I sort of called Rob. I remember sitting at my desk out here in L.A. And I called him in New York. And I said, Rob, I'd love to put my hand in the ring, you know, officially go for the position, the development position. He said, Zoe, we really get one person. And we have to hire somebody who has experience. And um, we love you. You're always welcome to stay here. But we really need somebody with experience. And I... I got it, <laughs> but I was also like, what experience? I know how to do it. Yeah. And now that I do development, I did not. <laughs> I mean, I guess I knew how to identify voices, but I didn't know how to develop around them. I did not know writers and I did not know. So um, 
a month or so after I asked Rob about the job, I heard that Comedy Central was looking for a director of development. And um, a woman named Debbie Drimmer, who worked and was a booker at Letterman with me and then moved out to help launch Snyder and do Snyder from out here, went to Comedy Central. So sort of I was following her path and I was friends with her and stayed in touch with her. So I called her and said, I'd love to come in for the job. And so she, I, I went in and I met with Debbie Liebling, who was the head of original programming. And I went and I met with her and, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand, I guess, how much I lacked <laughs> in terms of development. Um, but I talked about who I worked with at Letterman and who I brought in. And, you know, she is um, to this day, like the greatest development person out there and a great mentor to me, just in terms of how she lives her life and mm -hmm. so kind to artists, you know, never worked with stand-ups, but to writers and stuff. She's the woman responsible for South Park being on Comedy Central. Anyway, she and I met. I was so nervous. I called Debbie Schirmer. I was like, how did my interview? She goes, I was in there talking to her. Like, it went well. And and Debbie's a hunch person. I didn't have the apples to apples experience, but she hired me. And then, so Comedy Central, I wasn't doing stand-ups or in the talent department booking, but we did so much talent-based development that certainly my knowledge and my instincts were valuable and I learned how to or tried to learn how to develop shows and voices and writers and formats and stuff like that and then I was there for 11 and a half years wow and so what are I mean talking about Comedy Central like what um you must have been through the boom and watching it explode we yeah we had some great great growth in years and stuff and it's such a shame now because they have such great program but nobody's watching you know just that behavior's changing they mm -hmm. can't quite capture for the ratings and the ad dollars but their shows are so good and it's so different ours was like young men 1824 no families no this no you know it was very and now broad city and amy schumer yeah. and you know nikki glazer and fantastic i wish i was there now i mean i'm happy where i am but like just for that type of programming because i worked on the man show <laughs> i worked on literally the man show yeah, yeah, yeah literally i think when debbie hired me she's like somebody who could deal with daniel kellison <laughs> you know because he was the executive producer and i'd worked with Matt letterman um so yeah there was a lot of male programming which was a perfectly comfortable hat i wore but now in my job as heading up comedy and i'm at, at um blue ribbon and we're a studio we're not our own platform so at comedy central we were the studio and the network so we'd buy things you know write them pilot them and decide whether we're going to go so i have to go sell stuff mm -hmm. um but because i sell to different platforms i can do a parenting show i can do a male comedy i can do an animated show i could do a female-based comedy show or i could do just something fucking funny and alternative and i get to do it all and it's super fun so talk about that i mean what um so just talk about uh blue ribbon in general and what, so, it, what it is so blue ribbon was started two years ago um at Warner Brothers Television, when Peter Roth, who runs TV over there, sort of thought, this is a screen, it's not a TV screen, screen it should be under TV. So, and they had a lot of forays into the digital space, but they were all very siloed in different parts of the company. And so he kind of put it under his purview and created this division called Blue Ribbon. He tapped P, uh, Sam Register and Peter Girardi, who run Warner Brothers Animation, to run it, and which seems kind of like a weird choice maybe in the digital space, but super smart guys. And one of the mandates for Blue Ribbon is to... Um, use and utilize the Warner Brother IP, like their library titles. And in animation, they do that all the time. They have Scooby-Doo, they have Batman, they have, you know, all the rest. I can't 
Tom and Jerry, the Looney Tunes, like all these franchises, they mm-hmm. keep redeveloping. So he, they know all of the different players, DC, you know, anyway, so they were, they made perfect sense within the company. And we were developed to, I mean, this sounds really grandiose. So I want to preface it by saying that because I, I, I because they it, we're sort of trying to future proof Warner Brothers television. Um, it's changing. The consumer behavior is changing so much, and um, they want uh, they want a division that tried to create programming for the phone or the computer. We're not mandated with making pilots for television because there's a lot of people that do that very well at Warner Brothers. So we really deal. We don't deal with Netflix and who any places that are doing television. We are looking for places that want to do short form digital first content. Mm. I would assume like some of the stuff might make a leap. And I just finished production on a show that's single camera comedy. Looks like TV, could be on TV. Um, It's part of, it will be on Go90, which is an app. (laughs) And it's part of um, LeBron James Company's we partnered with them and it's a sports-based comedy and then I have something that's and that's like eight minute long and then I have something that's a minute two minutes long which is purely digital that is um, a woman who created this contraption and put a GoPro on her head and turns it to her so she looks like almost a live action bobblehead and she did a great video called mom head which went viral her name's joanna stein and suzanne luna and we're going to do a day in the life so it's not just parent based which is what her viral video is it's like day in the life like reasons i hate my boss and it's just this insane perspective that you've never seen and if i was making tv shows i couldn't buy shows like that so it's fun to be able to just kind of play around and be experimental so where, where do you source the talent to pitch these ideas uh, anywhere and everywhere. Like, you know, Joanne is somebody who um, I called when I first got to Blue Ribbon because she's incredibly talented. And we did a project at, at Comedy Central, which didn't go. We did a pilot. But I called her in to talk about some other t- I wanted to do <laughs> virtual reality porn, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, comedy, not actual porn. And and Joanna made this very funny short um years ago about uh, bloopers of a porn. Um, it was very funny. So I brought her in and then she sh- sort of showed me this and I was like, let's do that. You know, actually. So the porn blooper, uh, <laughs> yeah. that's still an available avenue that I might be able to pitch to you. At some point. For sure. All right, cool. And put it in virtual reality and we have a, we have a sale now. Um, and so, you know, we source from people we know, I mean, certainly managers and agents, talent, you know, I early uh, when, um, the rap um, battles that were done over at the comedy store. Mm-hmm. So I went to see that early on and tried to make a play for that. But I think HBO developed it and we're not competing with HBO. I mean, you know, we, I tried. <laughs> so I'll go out and see shows and sort of try to see if there's formats we can use. So anywhere and everywhere. I mean, the nice thing, the really nice thing is that, um, you know, Comedy Central, we would buy ideas from junior writers, but we'd always have to pair them up. Um we don't really always have to do that because the stakes are a little lower Mm -hmm. because if we pair them with a good production company, I think the thing about digital is, I mean, it's also an awful buzzy development word. It's authentic, right? Mm -hmm. There's niche, there's really true voices and you don't want to fuck with that. I mean, I think all television executives would say they don't want to fuck with the voice, but they do. And what I realized is more so I'm trying to think what made me click. Like we would partner Green writers up with, you know, showrunners, you know, Comedy Central a lot. And sometimes they were good matches, sometimes they weren't. And I don't, I'm trying, I recently had this like realization like, 
that fucking sucked. Oh, because I because I, I ran my first show for Blue Ribbon, a show that I sold them called Going There with Anna Gasteyer. And I had never show run before. I certainly have the tools on some level, but somebody was helping me um, who worked at our production company. And I was like, and I was friends with her, so it, it was fine. But I was like, wow, somebody imposed somebody on me about, you know, how bad that could go potentially. So it's really fun that we can actually buy ideas. Um, we're doing a fully animated show for ABC Digital from a writer who has has one staff credit, but she's so talented and she's writing the whole thing and we're going to animate it. And it's fun to be able to really kind of double down on voices and let them go. That's so awesome. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a whole nother aspect of gatekeeping is on, the, yeah. on that side. Is, it, is there any different approach that you would give to a young artists that are, that want to break make in, it. just make, make it. it, just make and it. And that's what you hear all the time now. Yeah. It's just too easy not to like mm-hmm. the, it's the technologies there. I mean, yeah, I think that, are you still looking for treatments and yeah. that? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh but, yeah. I mean, I will buy something off a treatment and not being made. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think better just go out and shoot it mm-hmm. for sure. But I, yeah, we would buy stuff off page. You know, we bought a, pitch from these these writers that we surprisingly sold to ABC also as, as a development, but like, you know, to do some more scripts and stuff. Mm-hmm. But we bought it from them just with a pitch in the room. So, you know, we do. We do. As far as uh, approaching it professionally, like, is there any advice you would give to someone as far as getting your show ready? And Or maybe a better uh, question is, have there been any pitches or meetings that someone did everything wrong? <laughs> well, um, I, I've only been in a few meetings where I've been totally lost. <laughs> I, you know, I, I can usually follow the dots, but there's been a few where I've just been totally lost. Um, I will focus on what I think works well, um, is I think it's really important to paint the world as fully as you can, because like with anything, if you're looking this is a weird maybe analogy, but if you're looking at data and you're looking at a column of data, it's up to that interpretation of how people want to take that data. So what was always amazing to me when people would come in and pitch a Comedy Central, it's a little bit less at Blue Ribbon because we're such a smaller group, but like somebody would come in and pitch something and then we would talk about it after and it was amazing what people like, oh, it's about that. And the other person would be like, no, it's about that. No, that's not what I heard. People would bring, you know, as we all do, our own kind of baggage to the party, what mm-hmm. we want the show to be or what we fill in the blank. So try not to let the blanks be filled in paint the world for me certainly at comedy central i think this is true here is like i always liked sort of the macro to the micro like the macro is why this idea came to you why this idea is relevant and pertinent to do right now Mm. like is it an article that you read a sort of of this world like actually the show the animated show um is about a um, Girl Scout troop. I don't know if I should talk about it, but Girl Scout Scout troop who runs their cookie business like a mafia crime family. And um, I remember when she came in to pitch to us, she cited a study done at some 
university back east about sugar being more addictive than heroin and any other drug. And that was like this kind of piece of information that sort of set up this whole world about sugar and how important and what a powerful drug. And so it's sort of, she took this in this sort of, you know, macro, here's this evidence that sugar is a crazy drug, more powerful than heroin and all the rest. And kind of went into the world in the micro of right down to the character and the stories. So I always say, like, paint the world, start large, and bring it in specifically. Like, why is it important in the world, in in the real world? Then what's your world that kind of reflects that of the show? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what are the who are the characters and what are the storylines? And, you know, what is the tone? What is the... You know, tone's a big, buzzy development word that's important, though, but it's important to say. And sometimes it's easy. I hate pitches where people are like, it's like this meets this. Mm. And, I mean, I think that that can be effective, but I've also been in pitches where people overuse that. And then it's like this meets this. I was like, but what is it on the tone, you know? Um, what would be a good example of uh, tone like that you would like to see? Is it one sentence, two sentences? Mm. Just- I would say it could be a couple sentences. Mm-hmm. Yeah couple sentences you know and I think that um in painting the world doesn't mean you have to I I would say if you have scripts don't be ready to give them up so easily if you're a a baby writer have it written because you're going to have to show it Mm -hmm. don't offer it up first like go and show your treatment and your bible and kind of tease them wet their whistle and then if they say do you have something then certainly yes I do I can you know satisfy that or you know, a lot of agents say don't give material to the executives, send it electronically. So there's a, a trail. So, so there is a trail. So there is a trail, you know, electronically. Like if you give it, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm so not strategic. Oh, as far as people stealing the ideas. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and I knew that at Comedy Central, we often didn't take unrepresented ideas. And I hated that. I hated that rule because it was like, who says if somebody has an agent, they have a better idea than somebody else. But I'm also the person that watched every half inch tape that was sent to me at Letterman. Well, did you ever say like, this is great. Here's an agent. (laughs) I've connected people. Yeah, definitely. I've tried to do that. If, if, you know, if it kind of like, Hey, I'm looking for new clients or, you know, or definitely like if I think people are talented, I'll send them agent ways to try. I love it. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks, Jamie. I mean, I guess, do you have any final advice? I mean, I want to just say, like, when you said, like, it's as much for comics to listen and for your therapy, like, when I was booking Letterman, the Larry Sanders show was on, and that was a behind the scene of the tonight of a, a talk show. And my days were long. I mean, we worked. It was the little, least money I got paid in the most hours I've worked. So I've, I've done something right that I work less hours. I get paid mm-hmm. a lot more money now. But it was crazy how many hours. And then I would go home and watch it. And I couldn't get enough of Janine Garofalo's, you know, she booked the comics. You know, she was the, ta- she booked, and I, I was like, what's wrong with me? I do this all day. And all I want to do is, so I, you know, when I go to Montreal and before I started Blue Ribbon, I went for the last couple of years, I went and I kind of vetted sets for all the TV and that's like what I did at Letterman turbos. Like it's just Mm -hmm. like volume, but I do it with a couple other, um, booker people like Colleen McGar and Pat Buckles. And I think Tony Megan took my time, you know, space, space last year. I, it's so much fun to be around people that can talk that talk and talk about a set Mm -hmm. in the way. Like it's this sort of, um, 
it's a language unto itself sure. when people talk about stand up um, and break it down. They're like, you know, this premise worked, but this thing didn't work or whatever. And it's been fun because I've been the single person that have done has done that in places where it was kind of neat to do it with a group. And so I will always talk about booking with you, Jamie, because yeah, it is absolutely. therapy. No, it's you need to come back. <laughs> do you, last thing. Yeah. Saying no can oh. be the, the hardest thing. Oh. So this is a maybe more of advice to other gatekeepers. How do you say no? I'm the worst at it. And I will apologize to anybody who I've never reached back out to or was slow to return a call because no's are hard. And I will tell you, nobody wants to say no. Nobody gets. And if they do get off and say no, they're probably a sociopath. So good riddance to them. You don't want to be in business. <laughs> I feel like them. there's a few of them out there. I think so. This is what I would say. Like, certainly... When I worked at Letterman, it was really specific what we could do. So it was very much like, I think you're funny, but you're not right for this show. Mm-hmm. When I were pretty small at Blue Ribbon, and we really can only take on projects that we think we can find homes at like at least three or four platforms, unless there's one really specific idea. And for that, I feel like I wish I could buy every project I loved, but I can't. And I can't buy your project right now. Like, so, I mean, I think there's a way to deliver it with kindness. It's my least favorite. And I will avoid a no and not call people back on time to not give the no. It is something I will tell any, like, that I'm working on. So please be kind. I, I apologize for anybody. I didn't say no. to that. Um, I should have. I do. I mean, honestly, it's, I, I would say that do it because I think no is the second best answer because it's an answer. Right. And people need answers, you know, and I think that 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 would be my advice to gatekeepers is as hard. And I'm saying it to myself as hard as it is, like rip the bandaid off and say it, because I mean, I would remember coming into the improv here when I first moved to L.A. where I would be like, oh, fuck, I haven't returned their call. Oh, fuck, I haven't That's watched their every tape night every of my night. Life. For you. I know. I know. I walk in and it's that exact it same thing. It's like that sea of like regret, like, oh, God, I haven't fucking. So I think, yeah, I think as hard as it is, it's it's the second best answer because I think people need answers. I think they deserve answers, mm-hmm. you know, so. Well, what about the, the folks? And not that they're any less uh, important in the scheme of things as a human being, but. That they have a really, they pitched you a terrible project. (laughs) Hmm. Well, then I think, you know, I think just the the fastest. It's a big slap to the face, literal. Well, I think it's just the fastest. No, just get it done fast. Like, so it doesn't build up any baggage around it. And, you know, that's not right for us for right now. You know, that's not the type we're doing. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't. I hope that's the right thing. I never know whether to be kind and, you know, <laughs> I think that's the right thing, but I hope people hear it, you know. But I think even if somebody pitches you a terrible idea, if they ask for constructive criticism, I'm certainly happy to, to you know, if they delve in mm-hmm. and I have the time and I'm I'm sort of a dork, so I might. But I might say, like, the pitch wasn't very good. I didn't really understand what the tone was. You should go work on it, just mm-hmm. like I would with a comic. But it doesn't. That doesn't happen as much as with comics. Like, hey, I like that joke. Work on that, or you know, it's a little bit different. But um, I just try to pass as fast as I can if I don't like it at all. Hello. Well, thank you for your time. God, thanks, what Jamie. do you have? Social media? Can people find Blue Ribbon or you on Twitter and whatnot? <laughs> I am at Zolane for Twitter. Z O L A N E. Um, Wowie Zowie. 
Instagram, very, very pale, not very robust Instagram. <laughs> Although my son is really amping up my Instagram account for me. He's 11. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> um, don't tell Instagram. He's not of age. Um, I guess that, that's Elaine. I love it. Well, um, in closing, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll thank, uh, thank Andrew for recording this Andrew, today. And uh, my final, oh, and thanks to Buddy Peace, who makes the cool music at the top of the show that you are going to love. Buddy Peace, I love it. From Britain. My dad's name is Buddy, so. That's true. (laughs) And um, remember to work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Steven, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.